Well, this morning I want to remind you of a few things. Uh, I know that I probably repeat this each year, but I think it's good for all of us to know. Please notice the missions projects in the bulletin. You can give toward those projects all month long, and we encourage you to do so. Also, different than what we do on non-missions months, but uh, our speakers' display table, our conference book tables, and cookies and coffee are all located in the gymnasium. So we want to encourage you after the service, if you're able to do so, to go to the gym. Um, that's, again, where you see uh, Wes's display table, all the books that are there that you can purchase, and uh, also some refreshments there. Well, this morning it is our privilege to have Wes Tabor with us. Uh, Wes has been a speaker at our missions conference in the past and has also taught at our perspectives course uh, in past years. We were talking about that at least two or three different times. He's been one of the teachers uh, during perspectives. Wes is the former executive director of Life in Messiah, and he is now executive director emeritus. Uh, Life in Messiah is a ministry that has shared God's heart for the Jewish people since 1887, been around a long time, and God has blessed. And Wes serves as a, now as a global ambassador for the ministry. Wes, it is so good to have you with us this morning and this evening, and God bless you, my brother. Thanks, Pastor Tim. Shalom, everybody. Uh, good, you brought your Hebrew with you. That'll be handy today. It was July of 2000. And Lori and I were in the middle of leading our short-term missions team to Israel. And we'd finished our southern swing all the way down to Elat. It's hot a lot in Elat. Uh, and we were up in Jerusalem, the place that we had called home for a couple of years in the early 80s. And now in 2000, we were enjoying our last breakfast up at the guest house on the Mount of Olives where we were staying. My cell phone rang and I glanced, saw the caller ID and excused myself from the table and went out into the porch that was adjoining and it was Pastor Yossi Ovadia, an Israeli pastor with whom we'd partnered in ministry and he said, Wes, your mother-in-law has been trying to get hold of you. Bill has gone to be with the Lord. It was one of those kind of surreal moments where time stops. Because I was looking through the glass door at my wife, who was sitting there laughing with the team, and knowing that in just a few seconds I was going to walk in and tell her that her dad had gone to glory. Oh, I didn't know Bill back in 1970 when he had his first open-heart surgery. He was one of the first ones in Chicago to have quadruple bypass surgery. But he got through that fine, and I joined what was then American Messianic Fellowship back in 1975, and Bill was in pretty good health. When Lori and I moved to Israel in 1980, um, Bill was still the director of the ministry at that time. We got a call in. 1981, that Bill was going in for emergency surgery and once again was going to have quadruple bypass. And Lori went home, leaving me with a three-year-old and a one-year-old for what ended up to be the longest month of my life while 
she helped her dad uh, be nursed back to health and strength. So that was the background, and in December of 1999, Bill and Swanee were at our home for Christmas, and that night they went back to their home just three miles away. I got a call at four o'clock in the morning saying that Bill had had a heart attack, and I raced over there and got him into my van and drove him to the hospital, and in what was really heroic action, the cardiac cardiac uh, surgeon who was on call that night did some emergency procedures that spared my father-in-law's life. And these next months were months of recovery, and he walked around with an oxygen tank strapped to him. But when we hugged goodbye in June of 2000, I really thought that he'd be there to greet us when we got home. But now I had the phone call and had the experience of walking in and telling my wife that her dad was gone. Lori and her dad were close, and it was hard news for her to take. And immediately we began to make plans for uh, how to get back home for the funeral. Thankfully, we were at the tail end of our time, and we were training two team leaders as the Lord had it worked out so that we could leave them in the capable hands of these younger leaders for the few days that the team would be without us. And I remember how God's word really ministered to strengthen my wife at a time of grief. So when Pastor Tim emailed me that the text for your missions theme was that God used 57 at a very difficult time. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 57. So if you brought your Hebrew Bible here this morning, you would know that our verses in our English Bibles are one verse number away from how a Hebrew Bible is numbered, and that's because the heading that does not have a number in our English versions is a numbered verse in the Hebrew Scriptures. It tells us that these are musical instructions for the conductor. This was a poem that David sent to music. He's identified as the author, and as is often the case, he wrote poetry that expressed his experiences in life. At least 73 of the 150 psalms are attributed to King David. Psalm 57 is set between the time when he was the shepherd boy, and the famous shepherd Psalm 23 was written, and when he would eventually become king. But this is in the in-between time. David is not yet king, and in fact, in our context, he's already been anointed king by Samuel, but Saul, his father-in-law, is on the throne, and Saul sees this popular giant slayer, David, as a threat to his crown. And Saul doesn't just isolate his son-in-law, he endeavors to kill him. He's not content just to throw javelins at David while he's in his throne room. But as David escapes, Saul gathers his army and chases David down the Judean hills out toward the Mediterranean Sea. 1 Samuel 24 actually records the historical setting for Psalm 57. David is on the run for his life. He returns to familiar territory. He's back in the Valley of Elah which you'll remember is the place where he 
rocked Goliath to sleep. Then Saul and his military forces show up, and David takes refuge in the cave of Adullam. Now, little boys like this part of the story because, you know, in remote areas, caves serve as restrooms. David's hiding in the back of the cave when Saul comes in to relieve himself. And it's hard to picture this, but David creeps up while his father-in-law is in there and cuts off a piece of his robe. And after Saul is back with his army, David stands up and holds up the piece of the robe and says, Hey, look what I got! Demonstrating that the king's life was in his hands. But David would not kill the Lord's anointed, even though he knew that he was the legitimate heir to the throne. Saul recognizes the graciousness of David's actions. In fact, he says, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. The king returns to his palace, but like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, whose heart continues to be hardened, even after seeing God's power, So David still stays on the run. He's wary of his father's fast-changing moods, and so he returns to the hideout with his men. And it's in that context that our psalm is written. These are the verses that ministered to Lori. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Be merciful to me, O Lord. David writes this psalm in the form of a prayer. Like many who face a desperate situation, he lifts his face heavenward and calls out to God. Let's remember, this was a boy who was summoned from the pasture by the prophet Samuel to be anointed king. David knows that he is going to be the king, but he's not yet king. Instead, he's on the run. And I don't know if it's happened to you, but many times we believe God has promised us something. There's something good coming But our lives right now are filled with tragedy or sorrow or loss. But notice in the text here, when David calls out to God, he's not calling for God's judgment on his enemy. Rather, he implores God for his mercy. In verses 2 and 3, David shifts from speaking to God to speaking to his audience. And here I picture David sitting around the campfire with his his mighty men, and he, he pulls out his harp and he begins to strum and to compose a song. And the first verse of his song is is a cry to God for help, for mercy. And he sees a couple of his mighty men giving him that really look. You're the captain of our motley crew here and You're the giant-killing warrior, and you're going to sit here and just call out to God. You know what it reminded me of this week? 
the White House released a picture of Vice President Mike Pence, who has been entrusted by President Trump with leading the task force to deal with coronavirus. And here's a picture of Mike in the White House with, I don't know, maybe 15 other guys and women in his team. And their heads are bowed in prayer. And when the photo was released, you know, those skeptics, those critics out there, uh, you know, they unleashed the hailstorm of criticism. I mean, come on! COVD-19 is a serious threat. And you're going to sit around praying? Come on, get up and do something about it. I kind of think that might be how David's men might have felt when he wasn't acting like a warrior. He was something of a wimp asking God for help. Verses 2 and 3, David explains his thinking. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me, Selah. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. So like David is saying to his men, of course I'm calling out to heaven. Don't you know who's up there? David is confident that the Lord will save him. And I love the two qualities in this psalm that he assigns to God. Chesed ve'emet. Loving kindness and truth. These two attributes are often seen together in Scripture. I count 13 additional psalms in which this couplet referring to God's loving kindness and truth are found. Psalm 25:15, also a psalm of David, is the first example. All the paths of the Lord are chesed ve'emet, loving kindness and truth, to those who keep his covenant and testimonies. But where did the psalmist get the idea that these attributes should be attributed to God? Indeed, this is how God reveals himself to Moses. Remember on that day when Moses asked if he could see God's glory? It says, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, and abounding in chesed ve'emet, loving kindness and truth, who keeps chesed, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. But back in Psalm 57, verse 4, David reminds his listeners of his present plight. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue are a sharp sword. And here I envision a, a scene from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You've got fire-breathing dragons, you know, ghoulies and ghosties and four-leggedy beasties. You've got, you've got warriors with sharp teeth with all kinds of weapons. And these are fierce enemies and they're coming to attack with evil intent. And having apprised his audience of the difficulty of his circumstances, David again lifts his eyes heavenwards 
and addresses the Almighty. He begins in verse 5. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Statements like this illustrate why David is a man after God's own heart. Is David in a tough spot? No question. Does David want God to deliver him from his troubles? Oh, absolutely. But think of this. The psalmist here is not the shepherd boy strumming his harp in the pasture. Those days are long past. Nor is is he the ruler on the throne in Jerusalem. That prophetic promise is yet unfulfilled in this context. No, the author of Psalm 57 is a fugitive and he's fleeing for his life. And I need to ask, what would you and I want most were we in David's situation? Deliverance and maybe some of that outpoured wrath of God on our enemies. But that's not what the king is trying to kill me, David is saying. That's not his heart's desire. What he wants most of all is for God to be glorified. He wants heaven and earth to witness another example of God's deliverance of his servants. In 1 Samuel 24, the story of Saul and David in the cave, rewind from there seven chapters back to 1 Samuel 17. Probably the most famous of David's stories. This is the Goliath story. This is the teenaged boy approaching the giant Goliath. We pick up the scene in verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. (laughs) He's but a youth. And ruddy with a handsome appearance, but he's just a kid. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? You come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me. (laughs) I'll give you flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. I'm going to make mincemeat out of you and feed you to the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I'll give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Even as a youthful shepherd boy, David had experienced the deliverance of God and his protective power. While deciding against wearing Saul's armor to go out and face Goliath, David told the king, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
David wasn't seeking to enhance his own stature in the eyes of the people as a brave warrior. His sole concern was God's reputation, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Does this indicate that David is some kind of starry-eyed, youthful idealist who sees the world through rose-colored glasses? Hardly. Let's return to our text. Verse 6 of Psalm 57, David reminds the Lord of the difficulties of his present circumstances. They prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. We find David in that wonderful balance of realistic assessment of life's traumas, tragedies, and uncertainties from our human perspective with the ability to hit the God button and change his perspective to that of heaven's. What is the result of adding God into the equation in life? Well, we have a real-life example in the verses that follow, which begin in verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. I will awaken the dawn. Two key results we note here. First, David checks his pulse and he notes that his heart is steadfast. Despite the darkness of his circumstances, he is choosing to trust the Lord. A calm confidence is possible in the midst of life's storms. Isaiah 26, 3 sums it up this way. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Number two, David's mouth sings praises. This is not a tune that he carries in his heart or a solo that he sings alone in the shower. No, he wants the world to hear of God's awesome power and divine nature. He wants the nations to know the God of Israel. And before the sweet singer of Israel ends this composition, he adds two verses to his poem. For your chesed, your loving kindness, is great to the heavens, and your emet, your truth, to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. So, what are the practical implications of Psalm 57 for you and me here today in St. John's, Michigan? Number one, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God in whom David trusted in his really difficult circumstances is the same God that you and I worship today. I, the Lord, change not. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that. We memorize the verse. We teach it to our kids. But what impact does that certain knowledge have on our daily lives, on the way that we interact with those who don't yet know Jesus as Savior, acknowledging his Lordship? 
the God who reveals himself as full of compassion and kindness to Moses also stated that he would not leave the guilty unpunished. So do we desire God's judgment on those who scoff at Christianity to those who make fun of Mike Pence and his band of prayer warriors? To the professor in the university who holds up the Bible and sneers, I don't know why they're still holy in front of Bible on this book. This is nothing but a book of fables and myths and fairy tales. That's what my professor at the Hebrew University said in class one day when I was taking him for the patriarchal period. He didn't believe that there was such a person as Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He didn't believe that Jewish history really began until King David and the stories of David are much exaggerated in his view. But do I want God's judgment on my professor or do I have compassion on a man who is not my enemy? He's the victim of our enemy blinded and deceived. God desires that his name be exalted above the heavens and his glory above all the earth. In truth, our desire for God's supreme exaltation is the sustaining impetus of missions. It was John Piper who pointed out that our compassion for the lost will take us so far in missions. But when you are bringing the gospel to a Christ-rejecting people, in fact, if you're met with just indifference after a long enough period of time, it's easy to grow callous. But when you're faced with those who are in active opposition to the gospel, who want you out of their country or want you dead because you're bringing a gospel that they hate, how do you sustain compassion for, for the lost? Well, when God's glory is your driving force, then you're willing to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And you understand that Jesus said, a servant is not above his master. They hated me, they're going to hate you. And Jesus, who came unto his own and his own did not receive him, continued to pour out his life for the Jewish people. Number two, God designs what we go through. We decide how we will go through it. Each of us must, must choose which lens through which we're going to examine our circumstances. There's the natural human lens, everyone around us who encounters difficulties in life sees things through the human perspective. But the God button is available to us. We can shift to see God's eternal perspective. The Psalms themselves give us a model of how to respond in times of trouble and uncertainty, deep woundedness and loss. There's a caution here. We've used Psalm 57 to try to encourage other people as the text that we're looking at this morning encouraged my wife's heart so deeply. But the caution is that it's much easier to 
preach this truth than it is to live it out. Uh, let me put it this way. It's much easier to live with emet, to proclaim emet, truth, than to live it with chesed, with loving kindness and compassion. We need to be sensitive how we handle God's word when we're approaching the lost. I have a picture in my mind. It was when I was a student at Moody, and we were, uh, the end of Founders Week, we actually went to Medina Temple back in those days, and there was a fellow who had, someone who was coming to the conference who had a janitor from the Medina Temple backed into a corner. I mean, he literally had him backed against the wall and he had his finger shaking under this man's nose. You're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. And this guy was like a, like a rabbit, like a deer caught in the headlights. He was just looking for a way of escape. The man was preaching the truth. You need to believe in Jesus or hell is your eternal home. But, but it could have used a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Look, God's sovereignty can be the most hope-giving doctrine when presented with compassion, but it should not be tossed into our counseling carelessly or callously. God is a global vision, number three, for such that all people, no, that for all of eternity, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are singing his praises, exalting him around the throne. With King David and with us. What is it that you're doing? What will you do this week that will make a difference in the lives of people here who need to know the Lord? And what are you doing to see that disciples are being made abroad in fulfillment of Jesus' great commission to go into all the earth and preach the gospel. So we're hearing stories of Chinese believers in Wuhan, the birthplace of the coronavirus. And maybe you've heard these stories as well of Christians who are leaving safe haven and going to minister among those who are stricken with this killing virus. It's convicting. What price am I willing to pay that others may know the Savior before they meet him as judge? Each of us has a singular story, our own unique combination of personality, spiritual gifts, and life circumstances. How does the Lord want to use you right here, right now? And finally, the choices we make on earth matter for eternity. If you don't yet know the joy of having your sins forgiven and having personally placed your faith and trust in what Jesus did in dying as a substitutionary sacrifice, bearing in his own body all the punishment of a righteous God against your sins. If you don't yet know that freedom, that fullness of joy that comes from having your slate wiped clean from any guilt of sin and, and beyond that being given the righteousness of Jesus, then today, I urge you, today, put your faith in what Jesus has done for you. May today be the day of your salvation. Here's what Romans 10 promises. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, and that results in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
For the scripture says, for whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Your capacity for bringing glory to God in the world to come is being determined by the choices and priorities that you have here on earth. Walking in the spirit is the best way to increase your ability to give God maximal glory throughout all of eternity. My dad had on a mirror in his office the little phrase that you don't hear so much anymore. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your word that encourages, your word that convicts, your word that tells us who you are in your character, your eternal, unchanging character. We're so thankful that you are a God of loving kindness and of truth and a world of relativity and um, an absence of truth-telling. We're so glad that when you speak, your word is true. And we're glad that you're for us and not against us. Lord, give us hearts of compassion for the lost. Here in St. John's, here in this county and this state, in our country, and yes, for the lost around the world. Be exalted, O Lord, in our hearts, through our mouths. Be exalted above the heavens, above the earth. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.